Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning. It's good to see all of you. What sweet worship uh, and the reading of God's Word. One of the things that I glean from the Apostle Paul in reading his writings in the Scriptures is, is a principle. And you won't find this directly stated by Paul, but I think his ministry was rooted in the conviction that he took joy in the progress of God's people. And I take great joy in the progress of this congregation. I know James and Gianna and their kids take joy in the progress of this congregation, as do I. So I'm glad to be here. I'm delighted to be with you. And I thank you for the opportunity to share God's word. Uh, Quite a few years ago, there was a knock at my door at my house, and I answered it. And standing before me were two men who were trying to convince me to become a Jehovah's Witness. And I was a believer at the time. I had been a believer for a while. But I, I was defending uh, my best understanding of the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ as the unique Son of God, God the Son, God in human flesh, who lived a perfect life and died painfully and yet rose from the dead in payment for our sins and the need for each of us to receive him by faith to live with him after this earthly life is done. And I was defending as best I could that conviction. But you know what I lacked? I lacked this verse at the end of chapter 20 of the book of John, the Gospel of John, John chapter 20. I know James has been preaching through John, obviously. I lacked in my list of memory verses, verse 31, John 20, verse 31, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the core of the issue that John sees. Now, the, the person, of course, they go by twos in the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, movements. Uh, he said, the purpose of the Gospel of John is to unify the believers, to unify the believers. And I thought, no, that's not right. But I could have easily answered his attack with this verse, but I didn't. I just, I didn't. I did other things, I think, that were helpful But this verse is core. This is the big idea of John's gospel. These things are written. Why did I write these things? That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the unique God, the Son in human flesh, eternal with the Father throughout eternity in the Trinity, God, Son, Holy Spirit, the Son of God, God the Son, and that by believing, not just intellectually, but in your life experience, that by believing you may have eternal life in his name. Well, we're going to continue in John chapter 21 today in the conclusion of the gospel. John 21 is kind of an epilogue of the gospel of John. It answers a few questions, ties up a few loose ends. Now, I know in our society we are very distracted, um, and you may be tempted to open your phone and check your text messages or whatever, but I would ask you not to do that. Uh, Let's show proper respect and reverence for who the Lord is and what he's done for us in Jesus. We're going to see several things in in the last chapter of John. And this is going to be really great. I am so excited to share what I believe God has for you today. We're going to see the value of obedience to the Lord that's rooted in love for him. Obedience rooted in your love for him, even when it makes no sense at the time. 
Even when you're looking at your circumstances and say, I know, Jesus, what you want me to do. I know, Lord, what you want me to do. It makes no sense. But I love you. I trust you. And I'm going to do it anyway, as you say. We're going to see the value of that in this last chapter in John. We're going to see the reality of the very normal human struggle to endure, to wait, and to trust. It's a very ordinary human struggle. We're going to see people who are just like you and just like me. Mary Magdalene, Peter, John, the other women who were first to experience and see the risen Lord. What a great privilege for the women. You could, the Lord could take you and pop you into that circumstances. That's how real it is. And that, that's how much they are just like you and just like me. So the reality of the very normal struggle to endure, to wait, and to trust, you're going to see the affirmation of the Lord as the source of all good things, the very core source. He does not need your help, but he wants your service. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me, but he wants you, and he wants me. He doesn't need us. He wants us. He's the king of the universe. You're going to see in the midst of his awesomeness, his gracious kindness, he is so unbelievably irresistible. His power and yet his kindness, gracious kindness to the restoration of Peter who denied him three times and swore while he was doing it. The one who Peter, Peter himself said, others may betray you, I will never leave you. I'll go with you even unto death. And Jesus knew he wouldn't. How Jesus restored him to service to him. His gracious kindness and the restoration of Peter after his denial. And then his quick rebuke of Peter when Peter fell into an old habit. He restores Peter. He has a proclamation of how Peter's going to die. And then Peter doesn't like it. He says something and Peter, Peter says something that's quite bad. And Jesus rebukes him. He's the king. He knows when we need a rebuke. And he knows when we need a soft touch. He has all of these things in his toolbox, and he wants us to be the same way. You're going to see Jesus' sovereignty in the lives of each of his followers. He is the king, and we are, if we know him, his sons and his daughters, equal in value, maybe different in roles and responsibilities, but equal in value as a son or as a daughter in your life in Christ. So the big picture is pretty easy to state. The picture is, as I said earlier, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we're going to go through this chunk of text, John chapter 21. We're going to go through several uh, sections, one at a time, several chunks of, of uh, uh, verses, one at a time. not going to read the whole thing in advance. We'll go through chunks, and we'll see how this all lays out. It's a marvelous account. But let me pray before we get into this specifically. Lord, it's a beautiful morning. Thank you. We are gathered together, Lord, to worship. Why? Because you're great beyond words and awesome, gentle, worthy to be afraid of, and yet loving us as a tender father. Lord, I pray that as we look through John chapter 21, that you would... Help us to have soft hearts to hear, not just to hear and to listen and to understand with our minds, but then to come away with a deeper love for you and a deeper conviction and commitment to live for you, to please you because you're good, because you do so much for us, Lord, because you're worthy of our worship and our praise. 
We ask this in the name of our great Savior, Jesus. Amen. I've got to say, I don't have a watch. My watch broke, and I was going to look over at the clock, but the light, I'm completely blinded, so I have no idea how long I'll be talking. If I go over two hours, you let me know. <laughs> so let me know. Anyway, here we go. This is John chapter 21. After this, that's the first two words. Well, after this, after what? <clears throat> after this, after his appearances, after his several appearances, after his resurrection. Uh, the first one, of course, was Mary Magdalene and the other women. Early that Sunday morning, they saw him, uh, and they, uh, uh, they were stunned. You'll, you'll note from uh, the book of Mark, Mark's gospel, that the women, remember when I said these are just ordinary people? Mary Magdalene and the other women were walking to anoint his body with spices for preservation. And as they're walking, Mark notes that they were saying, who's going to move away the stone for us so that we can anoint his body? They're having ordinary conversations. Uh, the text, the scriptures don't tell us everything that was said, but they give us a snippet of what was said. Of what was said. Enough for us to understand not everything that was said, but you can bet the women were talking about, how are we going to get this done? Just like you would do if you were walking to anoint the body of Jesus with spices. What, how are we going to get this done? Who's going to move the stone from us? The thing is huge. It's blocking the entrance to the, to the tomb. How are we going to get this done? having an ordinary conversation. So he appeared to the Mary Magdalene and the other women. Then he had uh, the appearance to two men on the road to Emmaus. That's not noted in the Gospel of John. Um, he revealed himself to 10 of the male disciples that evening, 10 of them. Thomas wasn't there. Um, and then he um, revealed himself to all of the men later when Thomas was there. Remember, uh, uh, Thomas doubted that he... he really rose, and then when he was there, Jesus had him feel the side in his hands, and he believed. And now, after all these things, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Now, the Sea of Tiberias is John's name for the Sea of Galilee. It's just John's way of talking about the Sea of Galilee. For some reason, he calls it the Sea of Tiberias rather than the Sea of Galilee. It's, they're by the Sea of Tiberias, also known as the Sea of Galilee. Now, that's about 115 miles north of Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified and where he rose. 115 miles north. So there's an undetermined amount of days between his appearance to the 11 until this day when he eventually reveals himself at the Sea of Tiberias. Tiberias. We don't know how long that window was, but we know it was long enough for the men to go to the Sea of Tiberias by foot, 115 miles by car, by the way. I don't know how far it was by walking at that point, but if you drove there today, it's about 115 miles. Now, when you're walking, a full day's journey was considered to be about 30 miles. I walked 30 miles once when I was in high school to fight hunger. Uh, myself and several hundred high school kids, I was about 15, hundred, hundreds of high school kids walked 30 miles. By the end of that 30 miles, I could hardly walk at all. And I was a young kid. But these men walked from Jerusalem, where they were scared to death, all the way up north to the Sea of Tiberias, 115 miles. It took them several days. Now, why would they go to the Sea of Tiberias? Why are they there? Why aren't, there, why aren't they south in Jerusalem? Why did they make a 150-mile journey up north to the Sea of Tiberias? Well, that's because Jesus told them he would meet them there. Mark 14, 28, after I am raised up, he said before his crucifixion, after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Galilee is the region. The Sea of Galilee is within the region of Galilee. As I said, Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Galilee, the same sea. So they're there. 
Mark 16, 7 also notes that Jesus was to meet them at the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias. They're waiting at the Sea of Tiberias. Okay, who's there? Well, he revealed himself in this way, the text says. Uh, who was there? Simon Peter was there. Thomas, called the twin. Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. That's a little town in Galilee. That's three. The sons of Zebedee, four, five. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. His closest friends, Jesus' closest friends, James, John, and Peter, the inner circle. So you've got two others as well, unnamed disciples who were there together. There are seven of them. The text does not say where the other four were and why they weren't there. But seven went and made the trek to the Sea of Tiberias. So they're all there. And what are they doing? They're doing something. They're not just wooden figures saying, okay, we're here at the Sea of Tiberias. Let's just not do anything. We're sitting here and we're standing here waiting for Jesus. No, they were just like you or me. They were standing, sitting. They were sitting there. It reminds me of a bunch of high school boys saying on a Saturday night, what do you want to do? No, I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? It's just like that. Our high school girls, they said, what do you want to do? I, I, what do you want to do? That's, that's, you can imagine them being just like that. So Peter finally says, I'm going fishing. He makes this announcement. Peter was a fisherman. I'm going fishing. And the six others said to him, well, we'll go with you. Okay, so they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just picture, join, join in the scene here. Seven men in one boat going fishing. Now, you'll, you'll see later in the text that when men went fishing at this time, they stripped down to their work clothes. Now, they could have been completely naked or they were, uh, had loincloths, like, like a diaper, frankly, uh, to cover themselves while they were working. That's how they worked. You got seven semi-naked men all night in a boat, and they caught nothing. It's not like a rod and reel nothing. They had these big heavy nets, and these men know what they're doing. They're casting the nets out, and they're bringing them back in all night, eight, nine hours. Now, I know how, I've done some fishing in my life, never net fishing, but I've done some fishing, and I'm thinking, how would I feel if I was in a boat with seven stinky men all night for nine or ten hours? How would I feel? No food, very little, nothing to do, but look at these guys and throw the nets out, and you're not even having the fun of catching any fish. I talked to our resident expert, Rick, last night about this. And I, I said, I know how I would feel if I was in that circumstance. I wonder how Rick would feel. I talked to him about 8.30 last night, and guess what? He was coming back from a, what, 13-hour day of fishing. I asked him how he would feel if he went out and caught nothing. And of course, he didn't answer as I expected him to. He's the eternal optimist. Sun was coming up. They had caught nothing. And he would say, well, sun's coming up. Let's keep at it because that's the best time to fish. It didn't matter he was out there for 13 hours. Now, to me, I want to go home. Because I'm hungry, I'm tired, they caught nothing. So put yourself in that scene. Verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? <laughs> children, these are grown men. The ESV translate that word as children, as does the New American Standard. There's other versions, the New International Version, that says, friends, do you have any fish? He calls them friends. Now, I thought that that's really different. Children is different from friends. What's the original language say? Well, guess what? It says children, young children. 
young children. So this man, the disciples don't know it's Jesus at this point, this man's calling out. He's 100 yards away. We'll get that detail a little later. He's 100 yards away. He calls out to the men in the boat, children, do you have any fish? Now he knows they don't have any fish. And they say, no. I don't know what other words they had for him, but they said, no, we don't have any fish. And he said, well, cast the net on the, on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Now, what difference does casting a big old net on the right side of the boat matter? Why does it matter? I'm on the left side of the boat, mister, on the shore. Nothing all night. Now, I'm, you want me to go on the right side of the boat? Who are you exactly 100 yards away yelling at us? But for some reason, they obeyed. Maybe it was something in Jesus' countenance. Maybe it was something in his words. Maybe it was just the Lord saying, you're going to do this, and I don't care what you think. So they did it. It harkens back to Luke chapter 5, by the way. You'll remember from the Gospel of Luke, uh, when Jesus was just getting to know Peter, known then as Simon, that he told him, hey, cast your net on the other side of the boat for a catch. And Simon said, um, you know, we've been out all night. We haven't caught anything, but at your word, I'll go ahead and do that. And then there were so many fish, so many fish showed up that the nets were breaking. You'll recall that from Luke chapter 5. It's a mirror of that experience. He's doing it again. So he says to them, cast the net on the, on the right side of the boat. You'll find some fish. So they did it. They cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Verse 7, that disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, of course. John likes to call himself the disciple that Jesus loved. He, he likes to do that. That's okay. The disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, because he saw the catch of fish, he therefore said to Peter, Peter, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. They were 100 yards away. Peter throws himself. It's like he grabbed himself by the back of the neck and threw himself into the sea. Other, other translations say he jumped in. You know, he did a pirouette. He did a cannonball. No, this says he threw himself recklessly into the sea. Into the sea. So typical of crazy Peter. Intense, bodacious. It's Peter. Now, why would he put on his outer garment? Remember, he's stripped for work. If you're going to go swim, and you have to swim 100 yards, you ordinarily, you wouldn't put on an outer garment, would you? Because that would make it heavy. There's several things that might be going on here. Well, one is that he, uh, he, he almost certainly put on what is known as a tunic. That's the lighter garment that is uh, against the skin, the bare skin. You put on a tunic, which is your inner garment, and the outer cloak, which goes over the tunic. It's rougher, it's heavier. It's very likely he put on his tunic and threw himself into the sea uh, to get to Jesus. The other concern here might be, probably is, that you don't appear before the rabbi, in this case, of course, the, of course, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. You don't present yourself in your strip-for-work outfit. You present yourself clothed and in your right mind. Simon then, he puts on his outer garments. He was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. You can't deny Peter's passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he made a lot of errors. He, he, he sinned, and not mistakes, because sin is not a mistake. It's a, it's, an, it's, a, it's a rebellion against God. But you can't deny that he loved Jesus even after this uh, uh, denial, this shameful denial that he had. Remember, he had already seen the risen Jesus. He was in the room with the others when he appeared, when Jesus appeared. So he throws himself into the sea just to be close to Jesus. He was impatient, of course. The other disciples, verse 8, 
came into the boat, came to the boat, rather, came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. So they're more reasonable. They drag the net uh, full of fish toward the sea. Now, what do you see in this text? It's rich with symbolism. It's an accurate depiction of what actually happened, but it's rich also with symbolism, intentional symbolism. How much success did they have before Jesus filled their net with fish? Zero success. Why? Because Jesus didn't call them to go fishing. He called them to meet him at the, in, in, uh, at, in Tiberias, the Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Galilee, in the, in the region of Galilee. He didn't call them to fish. Not that they were sinning, but he wants to make a point. So he says, okay, children, maybe he probably said that because, that, frankly, they're acting like children, even though they're, you know, tough guys, grown men. They're acting like children, spiritually speaking. Spiritually speaking. Now, who could get away with that except the Lord Jesus Christ? <laughs> who could get away with that? Jesus could. So he, they do what he tells them to do. He f- completely fills the net with fish. Now, why? Because he was lucky. No, because he decided, you do what I tell you to do, I'm going to cause good fruit. You do what I told you to do, you quickly did what I tell you to do, I'm going to cause good things to happen. It's symbolic as well as literal. They recognize who he is based upon his evidence of who he is. Only Jesus could have filled the net with that many fish. Jesus does it, he does it, and they say, only he. It is the Lord. John says, it's the Lord, Peter, it's the Lord. And of course, Peter then throws himself into the sea to see him. And then they drag the, the net full of fish into the shore about 100 yards. Now, we, we skip a little section here. We don't know if, I imagine, Peter arrived first. Um, there's no description of Peter's interaction with Jesus at this point. We skip a little time. Remember, the, this uh, a gospel, much of the writing in the gospels are not exhaustive details. They're selective details. Selective details so that you don't get distracted of the purpose of the book, of the gospel. There's selected details to help you understand who Jesus is and to make a decision. It's not exhaustive details. So verse 9, when they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. (laughs) So they went and brought all these fish, but Jesus already had fish and bread there, and he's got a fire, and he's already cooking breakfast. Now, isn't that interesting? Why would he do that? He doesn't need their fish. He does, it's just like I said, he doesn't need your stuff. He wants your service, but he doesn't need you. If you refuse him, he'll get someone else. He doesn't need you, but he wants you in service to him. He's got his own fish. They got out of the, out of the boat. They went onto the land. A charcoal fire was in place. Fish laid out on it and bread. In verse 10, Jesus says, bring some of the fish that you have just caught, that I provided for you, that you have just caught, big boys, Bring some of those over here and uh, let's cook them up. So who did it in verse 11? Who did it? Oh, Simon did. Simon, here's uh, the Lord's instruction. He goes aboard the boat. He brings the net ashore full. This detail is important, full of large fish, 153 of them. They counted them. How many are these fish? They're big fish. They're amazing fish. They're worth a lot of money. We could feed a lot of people, more than we could ever eat. Abundant, pressed down, shaken together, more than you could ask or think. That's the symbol. That's his fruitfulness. That's how gracious and generous the Lord is. Large fish, 153 of them, they counted them. 
although there were so many, the net was not torn. What's the symbol there? Remember Jesus told Peter he'd be fisher, a fisher of men, catching people? Very cryptic comment, not easily understood. Peter didn't understand it, I don't think. But now he might. Doesn't matter how much fruitfulness you have, if you listen to me, you're going to be doing good things, and no matter how much good you do, your net's not going to be torn. You're not going to be overwhelmed. It doesn't mean there won't be difficult days. But if the Lord is causing it, he will make provision for it in your life. Jesus says to them, by the way, they're very impressed, right? Jesus shows up. He's already got breakfast ready. They bring their fish. He goes, yeah, let me allow you to participate in my work. Bring some of the fish over. We'll cook some more fish. And Jesus says in verse 12, come and have breakfast. (laughs) Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Why? Well, because they knew it was him. They knew it was the Lord. They didn't have to ask him, but they were pretty impressively stunned by this. Even though they had seen him, the risen Lord, before earlier, this was a new experience for them, what he's doing now. They didn't dare ask him who he was. They knew who he was. They didn't want to ask him further. So Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. You notice that Jesus is in charge of the distribution of the food. He didn't rely on Nathaniel or James or John or Peter. He, he took care of it himself, another symbol. Accurate in detail, rich with symbolism for us to grasp. He doesn't need us to take his stuff and distribute it. He wants us to serve, but it's his stuff. He owns the cattle of a thousand hills, the scripture says. It's all his. He took the bread that he made and he gave it to them. He took the fish that he made and cooked and gave it to them. He distributes it for them, for their good. And this is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. If you do some counting... You might say, well, this is an inaccurate statement. No, it's not an inaccurate statement. John focuses on the um, cases he mentions in the resurrection. He doesn't talk about a couple of other appearances. He's talking about the third time in this gospel that he's focusing on that Jesus appeared to uh, the disciples after he was raised from the dead, the third time. So they're eating. We don't have any record of what they talked about, but they're eating and they're uh, having conversation of whatever they're talking about. We don't know. But they finished breakfast. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? I would have loved to have had breakfast with Jesus, don't you think? Guess what? The fish was was good. So was the bread. So put yourself in the scene. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, you don't get the picture yet of the context in which he's speaking here. But if we look at verse 20, we see that Peter and, uh, there's a reference to John following uh, Peter and Jesus. Maybe they were walking down the beach, but he's following. So the implication from that is that Jesus privately said to Peter these words. It was a private discussion about Peter's failure and his denial. So imagine they're walking and talking and Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, Son of John, do you love me more than these? It's hard to understand exactly what he means by more than these. He might mean, do you love me more than these guys love me? Do you love me more than you love these guys, these other men? Do you love me, or the third option maybe, do you love me more than you love these fishing stuff that you've gathered in your career? Do you love me more than the stuff you have, than the things of this world that help you to eat and live this life? That's important, but do you love me more than you love that? 
it's kind of, it's uncertain. And so we can live with, maybe he meant all three of them, I don't know, but it's uncertain. Do you love me more than these? He's so gracious to Peter, and he's gracious to us. So gracious to us. He has expectations in his graciousness, but he empowers us to live under his grace. He doesn't say, listen, do this, and I'm not going to help you do it. No, he says, do this, and I will help you do it. Look at how he handles Peter. Remember, Peter's a rough dude. You know Peter, impetuous, the first to speak, uh, loves the Lord, a passionate man, an intense man, a manly man, very rugged, but boy, did he love Jesus. So he says, John, do you love me more than these? And Peter says, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. <laughs> and he said to Peter, feed my lambs. I want you to notice something. Those three words are very important. They're his lambs, they're not yours, Peter. You guys and me, all of us, if we know Jesus, we're lambs to him. Sheep, sheep, lambs. We are not particularly smart, spiritually speaking. But he owns you. You are his. And aren't you glad that he's good? Because if he wasn't good, it's hugely painful to be the slave of someone who's not good. But he's good. Lambs, it's, a, it's an intentionally selected word here. He says, Peter, I need you to do something. You say you love me, here's what I want you to do. Feed, take care of my lambs. The symbol is take care of them, protect them, shepherd them, guard them, fight for them, know how to treat them, know how to handle them, protect them from predators, teach them, teach them how to live for me. The, the shepherd, if you ran this through the scriptures, had a rod and a staff. The staff is that crooked uh, 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 stick that was used to count the sheep and grab the sheep to pull them back. The rod was like a club uh, so the shepherd could club predators and beat them off the sheep. The sheep were helpless by themselves. They needed a shepherd. What a picture. And lambs were the weakest of the sheep. The weakest, the youngest, the most frail, the most vulnerable. And Jesus says to Peter, big tough guy Peter, Peter, I need you not to just focus on guys that you like or guys that you're impressed with. I need you to focus on the weakest of my sheep, the lambs, the young ones, the ones who aren't so talented, the ones who don't have the charisma, the ones who are less. Don't you be thinking otherwise about them. They're mine. I love them. You feed them just like you feed everybody else. You take care of them. You say you love me, take care of my sheep, Peter. It's a command. It's not a request. It's a command, not a request. Feed them, take care of them, protect them, feed my lambs. That's one. You'll notice that three times he asked Peter if he loves him to offset the three times Peter denied him. Feed my lambs, my young ones, my weak ones, the weakest among us, mine, they're mine. Take care of them. Verse 16, Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, again, there's space here. We don't know what else they were saying, they were talking about, but there's space, give it some space to breathe in the, in the uh, encounter. Jesus says to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know. You know how I feel about you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep. Gather them together, take care of them, protect them. That picture of the, the shepherd. Now, if you, I, I thought about chasing around with you uh, some of the Old Testament descriptions of, of uh, the importance of shepherds. This isn't quite easily understood by us, but in, in this era of time, shepherding 
would have been very easily understood. And anybody reading this uh, text in those days would have understood exactly what Jesus was talking about. You might want to do a word study sometime. Chase around in the Old Testament how, how the Lord sees his people and how he says elders are shepherds. People are to shepherd his people. Men are to shepherd his people. Women are to do so also, not in the formal title of elder, equal in value, different in role. Tend my sheep. The Lord gets really mad in the Old Testament at elders, at shepherds who are bad. He even calls them stupid sometimes. That's not very nice. He calls them stupid. The elders are stupid, he says. Check out Ezekiel or Jeremiah, Isaiah, how he feels about his people and bad leaders. That's why leadership is such an awesome burden of responsibility. You're doing work that goes on your, what I call a spiritual resume. Whether you're, whatever your role is in the church, you're building a spiritual resume. So he gives them a second instruction, tend them, tend my sheep, they're mine. Jesus in verse 17 says to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Same question. By this time, Simon's pretty upset by the third question. He answered him twice. Again, he answers him, he's just relentless. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Now, grieved is an intensely painful uh, experience, just intensely personally painful. Like Jesus stuck a knife in his body and stuck it to his bone or something, deeply painful, but for his own good. Jesus is the great shepherd, the great surgeon. Peter was grieved. He didn't like it. He was grieved by it. He was sad by it. He said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs, the weakest, the youngest, the most vulnerable. Tend my sheep, corral them, keep them together. Don't let them wander off and get damaged. Help them, take care of them, protect them. Feed them. Feed the weakest, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. You'll notice something about Peter. Peter's, you remember Peter's bravado? With others fall away, I will never fall away. I will never deny you. He was arguing in another text about who was greatest. He was right there arguing about who was greatest with the other disciples. First to speak, slow to listen, bravado, strength, personal con conviction of his own abilities. You get none of that here. No evidence of anything in Peter now that speaks of his past immaturity and his past self-aggrandizement, self-confidence. He's been brokenhearted over his own failure. Now, I want to ask you how you know. We know that Peter was repentant, and I'll go through other texts in one of his epistles to demonstrate this. But how do I know, if we stop to read right here, how do we know if Peter really was repentant and really was accurately assessing his own heart toward Jesus? How do we know that? Have you seen people who say, oh, yes, I love you, I, I love Jesus, I love Jesus. Um, how do you know they love Jesus? How do you know that whatever they've done yesterday or last week, that they've truly repented? You can't read their heart because people can be very sad about the consequences of sin or rebellion or denying the Lord or any other number of other things they might do. How do you know? Well, I've had to learn how to know in my own life, from my own experiences, but also because of the work I do with various churches, I've had to say, well, in my service to other churches, you know, George here is repentant for fill in the blank. 
how do I know if he's genuine? How do we restore him to fellowship? How do we know if we need to put him under church discipline? How do I know? How do we know? How do we discern? Well, it's right there in the scripture in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verses 10 to 12. If you want to even assess your own heart to see whether you're repentant. When someone in a position of responsibility in the church, maybe a group of men, a group of elders, a, a group of people, of, of men and women, maybe they say to you, listen, uh, Gordon, you're doing this and you need to stop doing it and you need to do that. Stop this and do that. Replace what you're doing with this. Repent, turn the other direction and go this way and do it this way. Okay, fine. Okay, fine, you're welcome back. Well, wait a second. Paul would argue under the inspiration of the Lord, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is the Lord himself, in 2 Corinthians 7, 10 to 12. Here's the way you look at this. Here's the way to understand. There's an earnestness in repentance. Godly repentance is equipped, um, I'm sorry, accompanied by an earnestness and eager to correct the wrong. Eagerness to correct the wrong. Indignance at your own failed sin. Indignance at not the person who's telling you to stop. Indignance at yourself. I am not accusing you of wrong because you're pointing it out to me. One sure sign of failure to repent biblically is to say, well, you didn't say it right, Gordon. You didn't do it right. You did it wrong. Okay, maybe I didn't do it right. Nonetheless, that's not the issue. We can talk about that another time. This time we're going to talk about what's going on in this life. It's not about me. It's about the person who's doing it. Earnestness, eager to correct, indignance at your own sin, not at the other person who's pointing it out to you, a fear of failing again, a longing for restoration, a zeal, an intensity for doing right. That's biblical repentance. That's the fruit of godly repentance. That's what you look for in yourself and with others. If you're not doing that and you say you're repentant, well, you don't get it. Worldly uh, uh, repentance, worldly sorrow is just sadness. It's just sadness. It's grief over the consequences. Oh, my goodness, I did that, and now i got to pay this fine. Or I, you know, this person I have a lot of trouble with, I, I got caught. I'm sorry I got caught. I'm so sorry. You see this all the time in the political realm. And oftentimes you see it in churches and in various arenas of life. But you'll see Peter is genuinely repentant. He's not faking it at all. Here's where we have uh, Jesus launching into a prophetic word about the fate of Peter. Again, we don't know the gap of time between verses 17 and 18. What we do know is now he launches into a different focus. Feed, tend, feed. Now verse 18, truly, truly, when Jesus says truly, truly, you listen up because he's not kidding. He wants you to get this. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Verse 19, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Well, that's a tough word. That's a tough word. Okay, Lord, I love you. Yeah, you know I love you. You know I do. I love you. I love you. I love you. Yes, I'll feed. I'll tend. I'll take care of the lowliest of your people. I'll do my best, Lord. I will. I will. I will. Okay, Peter, next step. When you're old, someone's going to carry you, stretch out your hands, and dress you, and take you where you don't want to go. How hard would that have been for Peter to hear? Remember how strong he is, self-willed, uh, powerful man, um, confident, but 
the Lord has a prophetic utterance for him. Peter, when you're old, this is how you're going to be. You're going to be weak. You're going to have physical weakness beyond what you can even understand. But it's not just because you're going to get old and have this problem. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Peter, you're going to have this difficult season of your life, and you're going to die a martyr's death. And guess what? You're going to glorify me in these days of your life. In your weakness, in your weakness, you're going to glorify me in a martyr's death. Can you do that? Are you up for that? You say you love me three times? You do. I believe you do. So what about us? Oh, yeah, I like Jesus when I'm happy and healthy and strong and I've got enough money in the bank account. But what if he takes it away? What if he takes away my family? Um, you may or may not recall, I don't know, when I spoke here, one of the recent times I talked about my daughter, my youngest, who went through a terrible physical trauma of uh, a scoliosis and she had to have a brain surgery and, and a, a severely crooked spine. We were told that she would be paralyzed and uh, it was... They were among the darkest days. So the problem is, if we say we love Jesus, we need to take up our cross and follow him. No matter what. Because we know in the end it'll be okay. Even if he kills us, it'll be okay because we get to be with him. And he doesn't give us the burden without giving us the back to carry it. He'll give you the burden, but if you follow him and you love him, he'll give you the back to carry that burden. He won't leave you alone. He will never leave you alone. So, this is what you're going to happen to you, Jesus says to him, and you'll glorify me in it. After saying this, he said to Peter, follow me. Tough word, Peter. This is what's going to happen to you. You follow me. Okay. Let's see what Peter does. This is most interesting in verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. Of course, that's John. He sees the disciple. He sees John following them. He turns um, he, he gives us a detail, uh, uh, the one who had been reclining at table close to Jesus and had said, Lord, who is that is going to betray you? That's all John. Verse 21, when Peter saw John, he said to Jesus, uh, Lord, what about this man? Oh, Peter, you were doing so well. <laughs> Peter, you're doing so well. Remember when Peter acknowledged that Jesus was, Jesus was the Christ? The first one to acknowledge and to recognize that Jesus was the Christ? It's, I believe it's Matthew 16. Um, and Jesus commends him and says, uh, Peter, you didn't do this on your own. The Holy Spirit has revealed this to you. And then he proceeds to tell the disciples that he's going to go to Jerusalem and die and be abused and die. And Peter said, never, never, never shall this happen to you. And Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. Peter, you were doing so well. You recognized Jesus for his identity. Now he says, Satan, get thee behind me. Now you're representing the worst of the worst of his enemies. What happened, Peter? He took, his, he took his eye off the prize. He learned that then, and he's learning it again. I don't like the prophecy, the prophecy you've given me, Lord. I don't like it. It's too tough. I don't like it. Yeah, I do love you, but can you give me another prophecy? Maybe something a little bit easier. Maybe something that won't be so humiliating. I don't like having other people dress me. I don't like having people lead me around. That's intolerable, intolerable for me to think about. I hate that. So I'm going to say, hey, what about John over here? John is your good buddy too. You know, I love you. John's in your inner circle. What about him? Listen to what Jesus says. He rebukes him pretty harshly. Verse 21, Jesus said to Peter, 
Jesus said to Peter, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. That's not very nice, Jesus, but it's necessary. The kindness of Jesus, the awesome warmth kindness of Jesus, but boy, don't mess with him. Don't mess with him. You mess with Jesus, you're going to have a world of hurt, self-inflicted. You honor, regard, revere, listen to him. He's got your best interests in heart for his glory. As a son or a daughter of his, you are owned by him. He loves you. He wants more of you. He wants to grow you up to serve him more effectively. If I want him, if it's my will that he, John, remain until I return, what is that to you, Peter? You follow me. You listen to me. You were just saying you love me. Do it. Let that, be, let that be a rebuke to all of us. A word that um, we need to heed him. He's aware of all the, the details of our lives and he knows when we're seeking after him and following hard. I lead a men's group at my home church. We've got about a dozen men there and, and uh, I, I try to kick off the fall. I did last time we gathered after the summer break. I try to emphasize to them, look, we're not here to be comfortable the scripture talks about men being uh, soldiers, disciples, men or women, soldiers, farmers, and athletes. We're going to build, we want to build soldiers, farmers, and athletes. And uh, if we have some things that are demanding, that's okay. You'll survive. We want to make you better, better in every way, better husbands, better fathers, better workers, better servants, better slaves to Christ, better sons of his. The patience of a farmer, that I'm not demanding immediate fruit in difficult days. The patience of a farmer, the discipline of a soldier who doesn't just fold up his, his uh, tent pack and go home because it's raining and cold. The victory of an elite athlete, the victory that comes when you have trained hard and worked hard to be whatever he wants you to be. Remember, he doesn't ask you to do what he doesn't equip you to do. He will equip you. Now, the bar gets higher and higher as he equips you. The bar was high for Peter. Soldiers, farmers, athletes, that's what the ticket is. That's the, that's the New Testament picture. So he says, um, if I want this man to stay until I come back, what is that to you? It's not your business, Peter. You follow me. Well, in verse 23, the saying, so because he said this, the saying spread abroad among the brothers and the sisters that this disciple was not to die. But Jesus didn't say that he was not to die, but that if it's my will that he remain until I come. What is that to you? What business is that to you? You notice the distortion of what he said. This is common. People distort what you say and misunderstand it. Just to clarify, John wanted to make it clear that people were confused and saying the wrong things about what Jesus said to John. And then in verses 24 and 25, he closes out, and he, he speaks of himself again. This is the disciple, the follower who is bearing witness about these things, these things that happened. I'm telling you the truth about what happened. And it was written these things, and we know that this testimony is true. There's no lying in it. There's no inaccuracies in it. Inaccuracies in it. It's true. Now, there were many other things that Jesus did where, where every one of them to be written, I suppose, that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So uh, not exhaustive details about everything Jesus did or said, but enough for us to believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we have, may have life in his name. 1 Corinthians 15, 6 talks about the resurrected Christ appeared 
You can look it up, 1 Corinthians 15.6. He appeared to hundreds of believers, at least 500, beyond this description, at least 500. There's enough evidence to believe. You may be familiar with a man named Blaise Pascal. Have you heard that name? He was a uh, 17th century mathematician and a physicist and a religious philosopher. He had this to say. There is enough light for those who desire to see. And there's enough obscurity for those who have a contrary disposition. If you want to believe, there's enough to see to believe. There's enough evidence to believe. But if you don't want to believe, you just won't believe. That's why it's said in uh, the New Testament that even if a man were to rise from the dead, you won't believe. There's enough evidence to have uh, uh, faith in Christ, but it's not an intellectual decision. It is, it's a decision rooted in the heart and mind of God who, who removes the scales from your eyes so that you can see spiritual things. So let me ask you a question in closing. Uh, what is the manner of your life in regard to these things? In regard to who Jesus is and his, his, his patience and his care and his love and his, his awesomeness, his sovereignty, his, his kingness, kingship, what is the manner of your life regarding what we know here today? There ought to be a difference made. Uh, we just don't want to speak so that there's no difference in people's lives. We, we want God to use his word to, to make a difference in our lives to each of us. This morning as I was preparing, getting ready, I, I was listening to um, this song by the Gettys called What Grace Is Mine. And one of the lyrics I thought was very poignant and, and appropriate. Um, I bow my heart, I take up my cross, and follow him. I bow my heart. It means I, I wreck my pride. I say, I don't care about me anymore. I bow to him. Why? Well, because of who he is. And if he's given you abilities or whatever he's given you, money or whatever he's given you, it's all for his glory. It's all for his usefulness. He owns it anyway. You might as well brag about your elbows. It's stupid. But you bow your heart. As the lyric says, I bow my heart, I take up my cross, and I follow him. My yoke is easy, and, the burden, and my burden is light, he said to his, his uh, followers. Take up the cross. And I know many of you do. Every day, whatever you're facing, the struggles, the troubles, better days will come as you follow him, as he gives you more strength for his usefulness. Better days will come. I bow my heart, I take up my cross, and follow him. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.